When it comes to your future, what do you know for sure? I mean, when you look ahead and kind of envision your life, what, what would you be able to say you know, like, for absolutely sure? When I was a little kid, for example, uh, I knew for absolutely sure that I was not going to grow up and be a farmer. I don't know why I knew that other than you know, we had a hobby grape farm. And so uh, myself, my siblings had to work on it most of the time when we were bad. And uh, I just knew out there doing farm work that this was not made for me. And so to all the farmers out there, uh, I salute you. I am not worthy and I hold you in high regard because I was never cut out to do what you do for a living. But how about you? You know, in your life, what, what, what do you know for sure? You know, do, do you know for sure that you have seven and a half years until you can retire? Do you know for sure that uh, you're going to go to Brock University after high school? Or do you know for sure that you are definitely not going to go to Brock University after high school? Do you know for sure that sometime in the course of your life, you're going to start your own business? Does your future for sure include a beach somewhere or more golf or time with your grandkids? My wife convinces me that what she knows for sure is that one day we're going to have a kitchen reno. This is now still years down the road, but I understand that she knows that for sure, for sure. But how about you? In your future, what could you say you know for sure? I'm asking that, admittedly, kind of as a trick question. Because as we look at this passage of this letter by Jesus' brother James that we've been studying this entire year, uh, James kind of takes a, a different approach to how we view our futures. He begins, if you have a Bible with you or uh, brought a, a, an, a Bible app on your portable device, uh, in verse 13 of James chapter 4. In verse 13, he says this, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Couple of things about how he introduces this section. First of all, he starts off by saying, Now listen, meaning pay attention. James, among all the things that he said in his letter so far, believes that this is extremely important material to cover. And so he wants people to kind of, you know, listen up and, and give them eye contact. And so he doesn't say that all the time. This must be really important. And then he describes in this somewhat hypothetical example of an upper-class merchant, I believe a concept that he intends to apply to all of his hearers. He's not just writing here only to these particular people. He's using this example as the kind of example that he wants to speak to. And I believe that in this example, he addresses three dynamics of everybody's future. He, he addresses the dynamic of travel, where he talks about we will go to this or that city. Uh, he talks about timelines where they, they say today or tomorrow we'll go and we'll spend a year there, the timeline. And he talks about financial treasures. We're going to carry on business and make money. Travel, timelines, and financial treasures. I feel like those, if we think about those things in our lives that define our future that we know for sure, for sure, I bet you that for most of us, it includes one or more of those three dynamics. Travel, timelines, or financial treasures. 
And what James is hoping to do by kind of introducing this conversation about people's futures is actually reframe his hearer's perspective about them. He continues on in verse 14. He says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. In this diagnosis, James basically says two things. The first is that our, our futures as human beings are completely uncertain. You know, never mind the 10-year plan or what we're going to do in 12 months time. He says, you can't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Because life is actually out of our control as human beings. We're not sovereign. We're not in control. And as a result, we have to live with a certain uncertainty. And he's not being doomsdayist about it. It's not like he's saying, oh, you know, remember what it would have been like to get up to go to work at the World Trade Centers on September 11, 2001. Like he's, he's not talking about, you know, a doomsdayist view. He's just talking matter-of-factly that as human beings who are not sovereign and not in control of all things, we live with a perpetual uncertainty about the future. The other thing he alludes to is that the future is not just uncertain. It contains tremendous brevity. It says it's here today and gone tomorrow. In fact, he describes it as a mist, literally a dew that you would walk out in the morning and see on the grass or on your car windshield. But by noon, it's gone. And, and he's alluding to life on this earth and the things in our future that we could aspire to achieve or pursue or accomplish or acquire. He's saying that they're here today and gone tomorrow. You know what the cliches are like. You know, they, they grow up so fast and the years, they just fly by. And of course, you can't take it with you. It's those kinds of ideas that James is alluding to here in describing the problem with looking ahead and thinking that we know for sure, for sure, certain aspects of our future. On the one hand, he's saying we can't control our future, so we live with uncertainty. And on the other hand, it happens so fast and we can't take it with us because life is just so brief and temporal. And so in response to that, James provides kind of an alternative view, an alternative way to view the future. It says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And in this response, in this kind of contrast to his diagnosis, he provides similarly kind of two features to the two problems that he was addressing. You know, to the first problem, the problem of, you know, uncertainty about the future, he kind of introduces the God factor. And he says, you know, your, your future plans should begin with God, with, the, with the, the, the clause or the condition, if it is the Lord's will. You know, to appreciate that while we're not in control of all things, God is. While we're not sovereign, God is. While we don't know what the future holds, he does. And as his plan and purpose kind of unfolds, we can acknowledge whether or not that includes certain parts of our future. And so it's kind of crediting God with the role of sovereign control over all things. The second part, though, is a little less clear, but equally important. And it has to do with the, the, the brevity of what we would give our lives to otherwise. And, and you'll see here, he says, you know, if it's the Lord's will, we will live or do this or that. And, and it makes you think that 
what James is in, encouraging us to say is simply, you know, fact, factor in this God factor at the beginning of our sentence, but then say, you know, if it's the Lord's will, and finish the sentence with what we would normally imagine for our futures. If it's the Lord's will, you know, I'm going to have 2.4 kids and a dog and a white picket fence. If it's the Lord's will, I'm going to own my own home. It's the Lord's will, I'm going to winter in Florida. If it's the Lord's will, do you, you know what I'm saying? That, that we just finish the sentence with our own dreams and ambitions. But I believe that's not what James intends here. What James intends is for that back half of the sentence to be influenced or contingent on the front half. Kind of in the way if you were on vacation, you said, you know, if it's nice out, we're going to go for a hike outdoors. But if it's raining, we're going to stay inside and play board games. Right? The, the back half is conditional on the front half. And I believe that that's what James intends here. For the this or that of our lives to actually be influenced by and dictated by and even driven by what God's will for our lives is. So we're not just throwing out the God card kind of as a disclaimer to just acknowledge that he's sovereign, but to allow that sovereign plan and purpose that he has in the world to influence us, to actually align with it and invest in the kinds of things that he's up to in the world. And when providing this diagnosis and remedy for how we view our future plans, you might think that James is done, but... Where James started by saying, now listen, and trying to get people's attention for how serious this is, he, he kind of ratchets things up now. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, as it is, meaning in your current paradigm of how you view the future, as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogant schemes. And all such boasting is evil. See, at this point, James has kind of turned up the heat a little bit because he's not just talking about a mindset anymore. He's not just talking about a mindset that, you know, forgets that God's sovereign and we're not and assumes that we can actually control our future when in reality it's very uncertain or forgets that life is short and brief and the things of this world we can't take with us at the end of our lives. And so it's not really worth in that short time investing in those kinds of things, you know, with the very best of the rest of our lives. It's, it's, it's more than just a mindset. What James is now trying to get at is a heart attitude. He's trying to get at a disposition that doesn't just believe that we're actually in control of our future and pursue the things that we desire most, but it actually brags about it. It actually brags about the fact that we control our futures and brags about the fact that we're pursuing our own agenda. And in this posture, in this posture that presumes that we're in control, and in this posture that promotes our own agenda, and in this posture that pridefully boasts about it with other people, James is citing a heart attitude of a posture that at the end of the day is playing God. It's a posture of playing God. That's what James is describing as evil here. In fact, one translation describes this in a way that says, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans. That's the evil. That's the, that's the disconnect that James is ultimately trying to get to here. It's not just about the planning or the this or that that people are citing in their plans. It's the posture of playing God and presuming that we're in control, promoting our own selfish agenda, and then pridefully boasting about it with the people around us. 
And as if that wasn't enough, he wraps up this section with this final warning. He says in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You know, you talk about a, a, a harsh reality. You know, no wonder he started out by saying, now listen. You know, James was getting pretty serious here. And scholars believe that he was trying to do one or two of two things. On the one hand, uh, they believe that James is quoting a very widely known proverb in his day that says, you know, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, it's sin, right? And by doing that, he's kind of summarizing his thoughts with a pithy, memorable phrase to kind of clinch his argument. At the same time, some scholars believe that what he's doing in quoting this, this uh, commonly known proverb is that he's kind of ensuring that responsibility lies where it ought to. And scholars interpret this as James' way of saying, hey, don't say I didn't warn you. You know, you've been told is kind of the, the, the gist of what they believe that James is trying to, to say here. Regardless, though, what we can appreciate from what James is saying is that James is warning these first century believers and readers and hearers of what he has to say. He's warning them with a pretty serious offense. Something that in James' mind makes them pretty far from God. You know, James in his letter, he's talked about sin and certainly as Jesus' brother, he heard Jesus preach about sin. But for James to describe this as such a harsh sin, this act of playing God, James believes that this makes you pretty far from God. When you actually take that posture about your future of playing God and presume you're in control and promote your own selfish agenda and then pridefully boast about it with the people around you. That version, that posture of playing God, according to James, makes you pretty far from him. And I don't know where we're coming at today, but I, I wonder if that strikes us in our own definitions of what it means to be far from God. You know, for some of us, we might assume that, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ or, you know, you're an atheist, you, you profess no belief or you believe the wrong things. Well, then, you know, if you have the wrong beliefs, then you're far from God. Or maybe some of us assume that if you uh, engage in certain really egregious acts, you know, lying and, and cheating and stealing. Well, then those things make you far from God. But I wonder if we've ever realized that the act of playing God by adopting a posture that presumes we're in control and promotes our own selfish agenda and then pridefully boasts about it with the people around us regarding our futures whether we realize that that makes us far from God as well, if not more. Gang, this morning, uh, this is what we refer to as an inconvenient truth. It's an inconvenient truth. It's a reality that if we're willing to face, actually is intended to mess with our lives. And we're actually going to be looking at a number now of inconvenient truths truths that James kind of lines up for his original hearers in this next series that we're going to launch in for the next three weeks. For today, though, we're simply looking at the inconvenient truth of how we view our futures and have to ask ourselves whether or not we've adopted a posture of playing God 
or whether instead of being far from God, whether we can embrace a posture that is God-centered when it comes to viewing the finite amount of breaths that God gives us on earth. Summarizing what James is teaching, if we want to take a God-centered future uh, or a God-centered approach to our future, we've got to do two things. First of all, we've got to anchor ourselves in God's sovereignty. We've got to realize that as the creator and sustainer of the universe, he's ultimately in control and we are not. His plan is being delivered and ours not necessarily isn't. In a lot of ways, we've got to differentiate between the, the goals and ambitions and dreams and hopes that we would have versus the timeless purposes of a sovereign God. In a lot of ways, James is quoting Proverbs 19.21, or at least summarizing it, where it says there are many other plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Right? We can have lots of plans. Do we realize that the one who's in control isn't us and that his timeless purpose in the world is what reigns supreme. In addition, though, to appreciating and anchoring ourselves in God's sovereignty, a God-centered, as opposed to a far-from-God future or orientation to our future, is also aligned with God's will. It's aligned with God's will. It says because God's in control and because his purposes prevail over our human plans, I'm going to align myself and get with the program of his purposes to a greater degree so that his purposes can blossom and be advanced in and through my life. And sometimes I'm going to even appreciate that his purposes have less to do with me doing something and as much or more to do with me being or becoming something that he desires me to be or become. In a lot of ways, this paraphrases the part of the prayer that we've been working through this past month in our Ordinary Revival series that Jesus first taught his disciples to pray called the Lord's Prayer. When it says in Matthew 6.10, you're to pray, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not just a prayer that we're to pray on behalf of society or on behalf of civilization or be on behalf of other people. This is a prayer that God intends each of us personally and us together as a community to pray for ourselves. God, your kingdom come and your will be done in me and through me so that on earth my life and the things about it can be as it is in heaven to a greater degree. And we can live out what we celebrated at Easter, the reality of heaven and earth colliding to a greater degree because of the life of Jesus in us. That's the view of the future. That's the posture that God invites us into. Not the posture that plays God, but the posture that centers ourselves around God, that anchors ourselves in his sovereignty and aligns ourselves with his will. And the two biggest benefits are that, you know, on the one hand, we can experience then the well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our earthly life, knowing that we've given ourselves to the plan and purpose of God in a way that actually has legacy and impact for all eternity beyond just this life on earth. As well as experiencing the fullness of God's blessing while we're on earth. Because we've said many times around here that the kind of life that God ultimately blesses and engages in is not the life that looks to God to bless what we're doing. 
but a life that looks to what God is blessing and tries to do more of it. It acknowledges God and aligns with his will. That's the life and experience of the quality of life that God blesses. Now, in saying all that, I want to be clear what this passage isn't addressing. I want to be clear that the passage isn't addressing the dynamic of just planning. Right? I don't want you to feel like this is a, a denouncing of good planning. There are lots of places in the scriptures, and especially in the Proverbs, that encourage and affirm wise planning. It's also uh, not necessarily a commentary on any specific thing, meaning any specific circumstance or feature of a future. It's not a bad thing to aspire to get a university education. It's not a bad thing to own a home. It's not a bad thing to retire from your career after you've put in a, a, a period of time and, and are financially stable enough to do so. Those aren't bad things in and of themselves. And I don't want you to feel that those kind of long-range plans that we may have in the back of our mind are necessarily bad. And I also don't want you to feel that this passage is addressed to any certain people group. You know, it's not just meant to, to be addressed to whatever the 21st century equivalent is of the, the upper class merchant that you kind of read about earlier in the text. Because in my experience, I've talked to people who are jobless, homeless, as much as people who make six figures. And we all have the capacity to brag about our certain plans for the future. Right? It's not talking about any of those specific things. It's talking about the posture that's tempted to play God. The posture that presumes we're in control. And we know for sure what's going to happen in our future. The posture that promotes our own self-oriented selfish agenda. And the posture that pridefully brags about being able to do that with the people around us. And I wonder in your life how common or how tempting that posture is to live out. I know it certainly is in mine. I think about both in my family and in my work life, it, it, it is very hard to, to not live out that posture. I've actually found it harder as the years go by. I know that, you know, in our family, our kids are at a stage where they're starting to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel of living under our roof. And, you know, we're two years away from our first child, you know, moving out potentially and Hopefully. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the kids are starting to see that. And so they're starting to ask, you know, mom and dad, what are you going to do when? What's your long-term future look like? And I'll tell you, every part of me wants to be able to give them an answer. And certainly we invest in our future. And we plan for our future. And uh, again, the passage isn't speaking against those things. But I can feel in my heart the desire to be able to communicate to them that we've got it together and we're in control and you just watch and we're going to get it done and we're going to deliver and, and, and to kind of take credit for it. And I can feel that every time when they ask us that, it bubbles up inside of me. And yet time and time again, Becky, try to, uh, Becky and I try to give them this answer of, guys, we just don't know. We're not sure. Um, you know, maybe we'll do this or that. Maybe we'll travel a little, maybe. We'll, but, you know, we, we don't really know. And the level of instability and insecurity and uncertainty of that answer, I find difficult to give. More than with my family, I find that a, a difficult answer to give to all of you uh, across our locations when it comes to our church. You know, in my role, most of the time, I'm the person that kind of summarizes and encapsulates and then articulates the sense that we have for God's vision for our church's future. 
often I'll give that talk or I'll express that or that'll be my piece in a, in a meeting. And, uh, you know, for sure, we spend a lot of time around here strategizing and planning and praying into and trying to develop, you know, a, a sense of what our future should look like. But I'll get people as a result asking me all the time, you know, are we going to launch another site? Uh, are we going to expand our capacity in the shelter in St. Catharines? Are we going to use some of the vacant land at our properties to address some other social needs like affordable housing or other things? And, you know, these are all great ideas, all things that we talk about quite regularly. But time and time again, instead of looking like I've got it all together and looking like we're on top of it and looking like we're definitive and we're on the ball and certain, I've got to shrug my shoulders and say, you know what, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. I can, I can tell you this and then kind of explain things that I believe I do know. But when it comes to the future of my life and family, when it comes to the future of our church, as certain as I'd like to be, as much as I'd like to have it all together, as much as I'd like to write the script, that's not our job. It's not my job. And, it, and it's awkward and uncomfortable and even embarrassing at times to admit. But what I do know for sure is that God made us and loves us. And what I do know for sure is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the world to live and die and rise again so that we can be forgiven and set free of our sin and our past mistakes into a new life with God. And in that new life with God, I know for sure that that doesn't just include being rescued from a life of meaninglessness and sin and death. It actually also includes being included with God and with each other in his kingdom building eternity plan for the world through the empowerment of Jesus risen life in us. Those things, gang, I know for sure. And as a result, I know that if we surrender ourselves to that plan and involve ourselves in those purposes personally and together, we will see God do extraordinary things. But when it comes to our own futures, all I can say is, I don't know. All I can say is, I want what God wants. And all I can say is approaching that with some open hands. And so that's all I want to invite you into today as well. As the bands come up and prepare for our final song, I want us to respond by all standing together if we're able. And as you stand together, I want us to kind of open our hands, you know, in this, in this open kind of surrendered way. And I want this to kind of, kind of represent a, a, a physical, kind of a, a tangible response that's saying two things to God. God, on the one hand, I recognize that you're in control and not me. And that my future is uncertain and, I, and unknown. And I'm okay admitting that. I'm okay saying I don't know when it comes to my future because my future is in your hands. But at the same time, it's, it's an act of surrender to say, not only is my future in your hands, but I want what you want. I want to get with your program instead of begging you to get with mine. And for the rest of the best of my one and only life, I'm going to give my time, talents, and treasures to advance your purposes in the world. Instead of defining my future according to my travel and my timelines and my treasures the way that I want to. This is the posture that we want to respond to today with God. And with the sternness and the seriousness that James speaks to us today. Do not fall into the temptation of playing God with your future. Instead, make the choice to center yourself in a God-directed future 
by having a posture, not of playing God, but one that is open-hearted and open-handed to him. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we're here today with our hands open to you, acknowledging that you are God and we are not. That you're in control and we're not. That you know our futures and we don't. And that where we have many plans, you have a purpose that ultimately prevails. God, I pray, even in response to last week and everything we celebrated at Easter, I pray that that would have legacy in our lives. That we would invest the best of the rest of our one and only life into your kingdom building, eternity altering plan for the world. Both in allowing you to transform us and then allowing us to be change agents in others. Where we're loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Make us those individual people and together God, make us that church. And help us to face this truth as inconvenient as it may be. God, spare us, protect us, rescue us from the sin and failure of the posture of playing you. Get rid of the presumption. Get rid of the promotion of our own agenda. Get rid of the pride that wants to brag about that. And just allow us to humbly, submissively be open-handed to you and to the future you have for us. We thank you and we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.